From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 72. We've got a retired MLB player who I was fortunate uh, to work with during his career, and he actually taught me a ton about how the game works, um, what to expect at the highest levels, and I actually was really fortunate to watch him mentor a lot of our minor league guys who were coming up through the ranks, um, and also one of the really, really good dudes in the game. Um, he's a guy who was a fiery personality on the field, but off the field, was a guy who did some amazing charity work, and like I said was a very good mentor to a lot of up-and-comers. Um, he's also transitioned um, in his post-playing days into more work on the professional scene, mentoring young players um, in a major league organization. So he'll be able to share some of his wisdom on how it's different to coach versus play. Um, so we're really excited for a good episode here. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens um, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest was raised in Cincinnati and went on to attend the University of Cincinnati, where he played four years of college baseball. At Cincinnati, he had the career records for home runs with 56, walks with 206, slugging percentage at 627, and on-base percentage at 499. He finished with a batting average of 366. The Red Sox drafted him in the eighth round of the 2001 MLB draft, and he quickly moved through their minor league system and became well-known for his high on-base percentages as the Moneyball era began in 2003. He made his MLB debut in May of 2004 and promptly won American League Rookie of the Month. He went on to play 1,061 games over 10 seasons with the Red Sox, White Sox, and Yankees and posted a 32.4 wins above replacement mark for his career. He had a 281 career batting average with 653 runs, 254 doubles, 18 triples, 150 home runs, 618 RBIs, 539 walks, and 104 hit by pitches. 
He finished with a 382 on base percentage and a 472 slugging percentage. In 29 postseason games, he batted 306 with 22 runs, nine doubles, six home runs, 17 RBIs, and 13 walks. He was a three-time All-Star, won a gold glove, finished third in MVP voting once, and retired with World Series rings in both 2004 and 2007. After his retirement in 2014, he was hired as a special assistant by the Chicago Cubs, and in 2018, he was inducted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame. Please welcome to the show, Kevin Euclid. Welcome to the show, you. What's up, Chris? How you doing, buddy? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. Um, am I even? Do people still call you Uke? I know you're in business with your brother now. Does that get confusing, or is it? Is it still like your oh, title? Yeah. It's still yours. Uh, yeah. Well, it's a family title, so it's not just me. It's uh, every single one of us is a Uke. So. Does it? Does that get confusing, like in the office day to day? <laughs> no. You know, it's funny. Some. You know, my buddy who I played baseball with that is my partner, Dan Reineke, in this, he does refer to me as Kevin a lot. Really? That's wild. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, close friends will call me Kevin, mm-hmm. and some will call me Uke. All right. So it, it it's plays. kind of this, in, yeah, it's this interesting thing and interesting dynamic of why somebody calls me Kevin versus why somebody calls me Uke, I guess. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was like a baseball persona after all these years that you that you moved on from, so... Um, all right, man, let's, no, get, let's, uh, let's get to the good stuff. All right. So I obviously knew you as a, as a player and I think it's been cool to see kind of the transition into, um, social media legend slash special assistant slash brewery owner slash coffee aficionado. So, but I want to talk maybe first about you as a high school player. Um, so you hit 475 your senior year. I think you're the only guy in, in Ohio to hit a home run off Aaron Cook but you only garnered interest from a couple of division one programs. Both of them were low. I think it was, it was UC and then also um, Butler and your, your coach at, at Cincinnati said, I'd love to tell you, I saw someone, something no one else did, but he was just better than what we had. And he added, I take no credit. He coaches himself. He knows his swing. Anytime we said anything to him, he was already a step ahead. He made the adjustments he had to make. I just think he's a really smart guy who had a great feel for what he had to do. So my question for you is, do you think you, out of high school, you were a better player than, you know, the college recruiters actually gave you credit for, or was it, you know, the kind of thing where you were just well-suited to go to a program where you could play right away, thrive and make the most of a, of a good developmental path? Yeah, that I, I, I believed in myself. I, I mean, I think if you look at stats and you look at the competition I played against in summer ball, I, I definitely felt like I was just as good as anyone that took that field. Were there other guys that maybe were more manly at 17, 18 years old? Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't sexy. I always say that I wasn't a sexy pick. I was, you know, chubbier and fatter and, you know, all those little variables within, but I found a way to get it done on the field. And I think that's, uh, that's a part of the process. I mean, I think the development is about, you know, as much as we want everyone to be, you know, the prototypical, um, six, three, 200, or not out of high school, probably, yeah. but, uh, yeah. you know, six, three, one eighty. you know, that can grow into a great build and athletic frame. Mm-hmm. I just think that baseball is a different sport. Yeah. Uh, is it good to have those qualities? Of course. I mean, to sit here and say genetics don't play a little bit of a role in how we become professional athletes is wrong, but I think I'm a prototypical example of the opposite of working hard, understanding yourself, understanding how to keep gaining knowledge within the game and 
having a passion and love for it. I think I just always love the game. I always, I, I love sports. And I think that's uh, something that, you know, a lot of people didn't see back then. I think we're also kind of getting in that era now a little bit in some ways uh, where we're just going off of, you know, it used to be, is he an amazing athlete? Yeah. And if he's an amazing athlete, he gets drafted a little earlier. Then it kind of flipped. Then it kind of flipped and people are like, okay, we, we need ball players. Which is a good thing now that we found out that baseball is not just about your athletic uh, prowess. I mean, I've seen Chad Johnson swing a, a baseball bat and it's not pretty, um, but he's a freak of an athlete, right? So I, I think, uh, yeah, for me it was it was it was a very tough process. I thought I was better, and I had just to prove myself along the way, and it was great. It it, it led me to uh, you know amazing heights uh, to the major leagues down the road, but. When you're in it, it's really hard mentally because you feel you're good enough, but people are telling you you're not. And I think I see that today. I see a lot of that today, and I I speak out. And when you said social media, (laughs) I speak out Mm -hmm. for the little men. I speak out for the unorthodox people. I speak out for people that are, you know, not as I refer to it, the combine guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the NFL combine numbers don't that, you know, Bill Belichick doesn't go and look at the NFL combine numbers and go, Oh, that's my guy. Mm-hmm. They look at a lot more variables and that's why they're successful. I think, you know, in, in the strength conditioning field, we often say it's, it's easier to make a fast guy strong than it is to make a strong guy fast. You know, people kind of see that, that burly high school kid and they wonder if he's ever going to be able to go out and run that like a six, six for him. And the truth is with baseball, a lot of times it's, it's the traits and the characteristics as opposed to just the raw athleticism that, that makes you into a big leader, right? It's the sports vision. It's the ability to have an approach and all those different things. So um, maybe we're just, you know, it's, it's the wrong target we're chasing. Well, I think, I think the mental side of baseball is everything. I mean, there's a reason why some kids can't play it because they just don't have the attention spans in a lot of ways and they have to move into different sports and maybe down the road they revisit it again and play it, and it clicks a little bit more. And I think there's also, um, uh, you know, a thing where we have to um, really evaluate and understand that the the breakdown of a of a long season is tough. And uh, baseball is a, it's a grind. It's it's a game of failure, and you're gonna and you're gonna have to um, you know mentally get through all those things. There's a lot of ups and downs. And when you're younger, you succeed you succeed a lot more. Mm-hmm. And as you get older you start failing a lot more. And I think that's the, the hard part for a lot of very, very good athletes uh, that, you know, that, that had the success early. And then, oh my God, they get to pro ball, you know, after being the stud in high school and they're like, whoa, this is a level competition. And the ones that keep going and keep rising through the levels are the ones that, you know, they might have, you might, they might have the failures, but they learn how to adjust. And then others, it's like they, they, they're like taking a car into a brick wall and it's the end of it. They don't know how to adjust. They don't know how to adapt. One of the things we talk a lot about with like young coaches is learning how to give athletes opportunities to fail when it's safe to fail. You know what I mean? Like if you're learning how to deadlift, you don't put 405 on the bar and just like hope it works out. Like you, you know, you put on 135, you get good technique and you gradually build up. And if the technique looks bad, then you just fix it. And I think what happens nowadays with young players is, you know, we've talked about, you know, like uh, helicopter parents. Nowadays, it's like the snowplow parents is they, they take away any opportunity for kids to fail. You know, you can just, you know, have an Instagram filter to make yourself look better. You can just delete all the videos of, you know, when you have bad outings and you can just post the home run you hit. Like, it's interesting way of society that's effectively, you know, giving kids opportunity to shield themselves from failing. Like, do you think that's a, a huge part of your development is that you were willing to like to fail and, and learn from it and, and figure out better ways to succeed? 
Oh, for sure. I, I think no matter what you do in life, it's, I, I think that's one of the biggest problems we have right now with youth sports is, you know, we put our kids in the sport that they're best at and we just want to keep them in that sport. Uh, I think that's a, it's a detriment to the kids because we want them to play other sports. We want them to be failing and learning through those. Like there's a kid that might not be that good at a certain sport, but he's a pretty good athlete. And if he's not good that first year, it's okay. But we have to allow them to try to get better. And through trying to get better in a sport that was a little deficient, they're, they're learning things. They're learning how to listen to a coach. They're learning how to get through that struggle. Man, I didn't get it. And then once it clicks, it's like the most beautiful thing in sports. And my, I, I really, really enjoy when, when things click for kids. But the problem is we kind of pull them out too yeah. early before the development process happens. We are in an era of information overload where we get stuff instantaneous all the time and we expect instantaneous results. I mean, you look on social media, people want to change the world tomorrow. It takes time, yep. you know, and we have to, you know, we have to also think about that with kids is what we know as adults is nowhere near what we knew as kids and understanding that kids can't process things the same as us as adults with a fully functioning brain. Well, somewhat functioning brain. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that's, uh, I think that's where, I think that's where a lot of coaches in the new era of sports really, really suffer is they have a hard time understanding how to get down to a child thinking and the good ones really understand it can grasp how the youth think and process and grow. I think a lot of people also, it's, it's their own self-worth, right? You know, and there's, there's no harm in parents, you know, saying like, I'm, it's a bad reflection on me if my kid isn't succeeding or whatever I've, you know, I've challenged him to do. And you certainly see that in, in coaches where, you know, they want a kid to become a pitcher only because they think that's the best chance for him to succeed and make the program look good. Or, you know, it may be a way for the, the program to stay financially viable because they need to carry bigger rosters. But, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic to never appreciate. Like you've been in enough big league clubhouses to realize that there are just as many late bloomers as there are high school studs, you know, for every first overall pick who, who ran a six, four and, you know, hit balls 450 feet. There are a lot of kids. I mean, I mean, you trained alongside Steve Ciszek, uh, Tim Collins, like both of those guys, like nobody really knew who they were out of high school. And they, you know, they're both coming up on eight to 10 years in the big leagues now. And, and you were one of those guys as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think, Things take time. And, and like I said before, it's the mental grind. I mean, if you're putting your kid into hitting lessons every time or you're doing the eye vision training and you're doing the, the, the running coach and then you have the strength and conditioning coach and it, it's a lot of like for what you think you're getting out of it for your, your child. And, and you might be seeing a little bit of results. The, the question is, can, can a, a young kid or a young teenager take on that load and still have fun? You know, I think a lot of like we're, we are pressing kids in a lot of ways to try to become professionals before they even hit like college. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where like it, it can get a little murky. The waters is the coaches that just love it, man. Just like see guys slowly and gradually build and have the health and well-being at the at the forefront of mm -hmm. why they're working with them. No I mean, I, I. I'm a little worried. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. I speak out on social media because I see a lot of stuff on social media that, yeah, it's working in the, in the short term, but what are the long-term effects? Mm -hmm. And I think we're in this really, really interesting time where a lot of people don't know where all this is going down five years down the road and the numbers that could happen with guys getting hurt. Guys getting hurt. And all of that, just 
I mean, I think you're a guy who, who loves baseball and like, you know, besides just your career, I think you have a passion for growing the game, making others passionate about it. And, you know, when, when it's not fun at 15, there's a good chance it's not going to be fun at 45 when you're thinking about whether you're going to take your kids to a major league park to watch a game. And that, that for me is just as concerning as like, what does it mean for the future of, of baseball fans? For sure. Um, I think that, um, you know, I'm, 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 we might get into this a little later. Sorry, but I, you know, I'm, I'm working on a project right now where uh, we're going to work on a, a local project here to, you know, help grow the game, help, uh, you know, get a, a travel ball team type thing, which is a different kind of travel ball uh, team in the way that we're not just going to play a bunch of different um, tournaments. We're going to go down to a different city and play a couple teams. And, you know, maybe it's over that weekend we play those couple teams that are really, really good competition. Mm-hmm. And we're going to work on fundamentals. We're going to do other things. But I think basically, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do is to teach the game. So when these kids, if some of them go to college, if some go to pro ball, and some won't, and will never go to pro ball or go to college and play. But as long as they leave our program loving the game, learning the game, and wanting to stay like attached to the game as a fan, Mm-hmm. Or as a coach down the road, I think it's huge. I think that should be the focus of all of this. That's huge. Um, so we're gonna shift gears. We're gonna talk about college because you know your your trend of of putting up great numbers continued into college. You were second team All American both junior and senior year. You know you set school records and uh, you know home runs in one game. You hit three. You had nineteen on the season, and then you went undrafted after your oh. junior year. Um, then you went to the Cape and you finished sixth in the league in batting average. And that was still back in the, the year of like draft and follow, or, you know, even you could have been signed as a free agent and, and still nobody went after you after your junior year at Cincinnati. You went back to school senior year. You were a second team all American again, and you signed for $12,000. So it's kind of the same question. Um, were you a much better player than pro scouts gave you credit for? Did you feel like it was something that you learned when you got to pro ball that, you know, that allowed you to deliver so much more value than that $12,000 could ever even possibly represent? What, what changed or was it just that you finally got noticed in the right context? You know, it, it was just somebody taking a chance and just saying, basically, like, like I said, just throwing all the, all the old crap out of, you know, we need athletes. I mean, Michael Vick, I drafted uh, in the 30th round my junior year. Um, I don't think he played baseball since junior high. And, uh, <laughs> by the Colorado Rockies. And I always tell that story because I'll never forget it. I'll never forget watching the draft or listening or I don't know how it was back then. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was just basically like, Hey, look at this. Like Michael Vick just got drafted in the 30th round because of his athleticism. And I'm like, not even like getting taken in the, the 50th round by the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> um, you know, a local team, you know, that's right down the street from my university. And um, I got a chip on my shoulder. Uh, huge a huge chip on my shoulder from the reds and how they just overlooked me the whole time and i was right there but i i think that's uh i definitely think i was a better player than scouts thought at the time and they were just scared that i was unconventional uh you know i just had a different unique stance and they didn't think it would play in pro ball and you know there was other guys that they loved and they never sniffed double a or triple a and that's the thing that we are at a point right now where we're also just trying to say, like, you know, if you have an exit velocity of, of this, if you have, if you throw X, you know, if you throw 95 plus, then you're going to be a big leaguer. And it's far from the truth in so many ways, because there's so many more variables that, that go into producing day in and day out. 
And like I said before, a lot of it is the mental grind within of knowing how to step out of the box after a bad swing and making a correction on the fly. Because if you don't, you're going over for that day. And, you know, making that correction, especially in your first step back can change an over four into even a one for four, uh, let alone maybe like a three for four or four for four days. So I, I, I love talking baseball in the sense of how do you make mental notes? How do you make mental cues that when you do something wrong and you feel it, how do you make that adjustment? Like the old cliche pitch to pitch. I love that. I think it actually leads in my next question really well too is, you know, I think one of the themes Ooh, that, good. that, that resounds clearly throughout your career is like plate discipline, right? Not only, the on-base percentage aspect of it, but like you were perennially top two or three in the league in terms of the pitches you saw per at bat um, and all the way through the minor leagues, I feel like as well. Um, were there specific practices that you used to develop that kind of discipline? Um, you know, do you have suggestions for aspiring players who want to have, you know, higher quality at bats? Like, is it pitch recognition? Is it advanced scouting? Is it, you know, or is it just natural selection? It's something you always did well. Well, I think one of the greatest things we've always had, and it's funny, like, uh, like following me on social media, people think I'm anti analytics, which is so far from the truth. It's like ridiculous <laughs> because I used analytics. I mean, I, we got, we got these great scouting reports. We use percentages, um, a pitch is thrown, what counts, you know, I mean, we had everything given to us and we had, but I really love like the, um, and we're going to, and we're going to lose this here, um, you know, very shortly in the game, which I, I really don't like. Um, but the nationals, they, they keep their scouts and they won last year. So, but, uh, I love those scouts because a lot of those scouts I could sit down and have a conversation with. And, I, and even when they had it off, we could sit down and talk to them and be like, no, you know, th this is what I saw at the plate. And then they go, Oh, okay. Because it's a conversation, right? So I could sit down with one of our scouts and be like, this is from my angle when I'm hitting, it's not a slider. It's more of a cutter. Mm -hmm. Right. So now they can go back and change the numbers of the percentages of a cutter versus slider. Um, and, and for me, the conversations were always key, but I watched a ton of video. Mm -hmm. I would go, I would get this piece of paper. I would go over the scouting report. I'd look over the analytics, look at the numbers in, in hitters counts, look at the numbers in strikeout type counts, one, two, oh, two. And then I would go up to the video and watch. I would watch counts. I'd watch, I would watch movement of pitches. I'd watch tendencies. Uh, I would study catchers, you know, how they call the game. And that gave me a good understanding of what might happen. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is this, that's all past data. That's all past history. Yeah. That's great that you have all that information, but on that day, things can change. You know, let's say this guy throws 35% sliders. Well, first inning, he is this spiking sliders. He's missing sliders. They're backing up. They're hitting guys. Now what do we do? Now we have to eliminate that pitch and that percentage that he's probably going to throw that. Or we just take away that pitch entirely and say, okay, if you, if you start finding in the third or fourth inning, I'll adjust. But until then, I'm looking dead red heaters all day. So that was my mentality was not only just doing all my homework before the game, but in-game. In-game is so vital. Like, and you have to sit there, watch the game, talk to your teammates, see what they saw, ask them questions, and just really engulf yourself from the moment that first pitch is thrown to the last pitch and see what's going on. Because there's something you could pick up within that game. Even a reliever coming in, you might not face them that day, but you might face them tomorrow. So you got to pay attention to the game and talk to your teammates. What do you, uh, do you notice a difference in terms of like 
how accessible video was, you know, from the time that I mean, you entered the league in, in 04 and then retired in 14. Like, I mean, I, I obviously know what guys get now. It's insane in terms of how quickly you can get access to video and, you know, how you get highlight reels basically sent to you when you were coming up, like, Oh five, oh six, oh seven. Did you did you have those really good video resources, or did it just surge in, in yeah. availability over the time? It definitely got better over time. We had different camera angles where we could watch different things. Got clearer, of course, with technology. You know, for me, I, I only like as as my career went on, and we had some really good young players come through. For some reason, younger players were always like going down to the video room and they would hit the arrow, click, 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 click. So it's like in very slow mo. Mm -hmm. And they would just sit there and click, 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 click and go through their whole swing and click, 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 click. And I'm like, guys, get on the bench, watch the game, be with your teammates. Because if you don't know what you did on that swing right now and then, like, you need to be, you, you need to know yourself better. Like, you need to learn yourself better. And you got to stop being on this video thing all the time because two things. Paralysis through analysis is yeah. very, very real in baseball, mm -hmm. and especially for hitters. Overanalyzing your at bats, overanalyzing little things, you know your your mechanics, and oh, I should have done this this time. Well, you know what? The next time you do it, you might even overdo it, yeah. and you might get under the ball. You might get on top of the ball too much. So, for me, I, I went down to watch video just for pitches. I want to see the way the. I only want to see where the pitch location was, whether it be a called third strike or a ball or something or. Um, if I hit the ball, like, and roll it over to short, I'm like, man, I felt like that pitch was right down the middle. And then I go look as inside, outside sliders, all kinds of different pitches. So for me, going back and watching video was more about pitch location. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, if I was in a rut or something, I might go slow up, you know, my hitting mechanics. But what I found through it all was it was mostly timing and my setup and my, uh, my, you know, if like Dave Magnin always used to come to me, he's like, Hey, you're going too quick, getting back, slowly get back early. And, so like little things like that were more beneficial to me than going and looking at my swing every single at bat. I think it's interesting. You almost just described like the difference between internal and external focus cues, which is, is a hot topic in the world of coaching nowadays is when you get athletes very, very focused on where their body is in space and they start thinking about their arm or their leg or, or, you know, head position, whatever you start thinking about your own body and the outcomes are actually markedly worse in most cases from a performance standpoint. Whereas you, you focus on the pitch or you focus on the pitch, the external environment, it seems like things are inherently a lot better. So that's kind of an, an interesting accidental coaching lesson you just delivered. So nicely done. Um, so you, you, you kind of hinted at, it. you went through a different, a couple different, um, you know, kind of versions of, you know, atypical batting stances. There was a big crouch early in your career. Um, then your right hand kind of climbed up higher on the bat later in your career. Um, you know, these are intricacies that are unique to your setup. And I'm curious, what are the things that you think all hitters, regardless of their, their setup, should look to achieve in, in a high-level swing? Like, where were the places that you needed to get to in spite of those intricacies? You know, everything's timing, right? Everything starts with the timing. So, it doesn't matter if you go in the, you know, you go in the, you got your KVS readings on, you got your ground force, you know, and all this stuff is lined up correctly. And you go, you know, like, and I'm, I'm only using all this stuff because I, I do know a little bit. So for all those people that don't think I know anything about this, <laughs> I know a little bit about it. So, um, but the funny thing is, is you could have all those readings in BP nailed down, dominating, you know, you got your, you got your side bend right, you got this right. Yeah. Well, you get in the game and your timing's off and you're not getting down, you know, like, uh, you know, you're not getting back early, which, you know, basically 
changes everything from the time your foot gets down to where your hands are down into the hitting load. A lot of things can go wrong. So for me, everything starts with timing. I mean, when your timing's off, you got no chance, right? In a lot of ways. But on the flip side of that, as a hitter, you got to learn how to hit off time. You got to learn how your swing changes when you're off balance. When a guy is, when you're, when you're gearing up for 98 and you're out in front on a slider, what kind of bat, that bat path and that swing is way different than I'm on 98 fastball down the middle on time. So I'm, I'm a big believer that when I was in K, your batting practice, your flips, your toss, whatever you do, all that stuff, you know, you have to have a purpose behind it in order to gain in the game situation. Whatever you do in those cages, whatever you do in BP is not going to dictate how your game is going to be played, but your work ethic and what you're doing should be things that are going to benefit you in game. And what I see with a lot of guys, you know, some guys was going to the cage and those try to hit monster homers or BP, those hit monster homers over and over and over. And then they go in the game and they think they're, they think they're, they're good. I'm, I'm, you know, I got my A swing. I got my A swing. Well, you didn't even work on your B swing ever. So how are you expecting to do your B swing and BP? And some people are like, well, that's not game situation. That's not how you do it. I'm like, well, listen, you can't be good all the time. And it's nearly impossible to, to repeat the same muscle pattern movements, right? Every single bat, every single pitch. But what you can do is you can figure out how to compete in the box. And I think that's what I learned the most from the players around me was you just got to learn how to compete. Yeah. You know, you, you don't just, you know, just swing hard every time in case you hit it. I mean, some, <laughs> there's some days you do, um, cause you're just, you, you have nothing else to, <laughs> you have nothing else in the tank. Did you experiment at all with like random practice? Like that's, it's a little bit of a hot button topic nowadays is, you know, instead of guys just, you know, feeling good, hitting off a tee, getting, you know, 70 mile an hour BP grooved right down the middle to them, you know, during December, January, February, you know, we see guys that are getting, you know, fooled on curveballs in January and they're, they're seeing unpredictable, you know, BP in the off season as a way to, to effectively add that level of randomness to the game. Did you experiment with that? Do you like the idea? I know some guys are a little bit, you know, they want to leave the cage nope. feeling confident. You, did you ever touch that? Hell no. I didn't <laughs> take live BP until I got there. <laughs> Spring training. Yeah, I, I use the off season, and I truly believe the off season is for uh, one healing up first, right? Mm -hmm. So going in the off season, you got to heal yourself up, and then mm -hmm. it's building back up, right? You need to take a break. You need to you need to live your life a little bit. Uh, I I do know guys that would start up in October, November, December, and you know I, I hate to say it, a lot of those guys were career minor leaguers in a lot of ways. Um, they were just baseball dirt dog, like they just love baseball, right? Mm -hmm. And it and some of them maybe not like the skill level. But I felt like the major league guys, like, you know, a lot of, maybe Dustin Pedroia might've been different. He might, he might've been hitting all year round, but, uh, you know, I think most guys, you need that break. You need that mental break. You need to get away. You need to take care of your physical well being. So for me personally, I like the strength and conditioning mixed with a little bit of baseball. Yeah. Um, when I was younger, I definitely did more earlier. And then as I got older, I did less. Because I, I would just rely on spring training to get me ready. Absolutely. One more thing on the adjustability side of things. I'm actually curious to get your take on this. Is I remember a quote. It was probably six or seven years ago from Chipper Jones. You know, it was maybe right at the end of his career, and he talked about, you know, when guys are throwing 95 plus. I'm guessing when it's when it's less than 95, I can I can react and adjust. You know, is that a is that a gross you know kind of oversimplification of it? Is it is it something that you know you experienced as well? Like, you, is there adjustability at high velocity, or is that a not not a feasible option. 
Well, yeah, every hitter is different, right? So some hitters are guest, you know, guest hitters. Uh, Kevin Millar was a huge guest hitter, uh, you know, and there's some hitters that, you know, for me, I was the type of hitters like I'm looking fastball every time because if he's throwing 98 and he throws me a fastball down the middle, I want to, I want to hit that. You know, if he's throwing an 88 mile per hour slider, that's uh, tough to pick up and tough to hit. I don't want to hit that. So I always looked fastball. So I was on time and then I would just try to react to the off speed stuff. But, uh, the harder guys throw, uh, I was always a firm believer that you, uh, basically you decrease your, your hot spot, right? So, uh, basically the way I say it is you have this, you, if he's going to throw 98 miles per hour and he's going to hit his spots that day, there's a good chance you're out, right? I mean, that's just, yeah. that's just how it is in a lot of ways, but a lot of guys that throw 98 aren't necessarily, you know, they're, they're not, they're not in the zone a lot. They're yeah. wild. They leave pitches down the middle. So, my philosophy was always, I'm going to look dead red, and if he can get me out, you know, especially the guys that throw 98 and, and didn't have a lot of control, mm-hmm. I'm really focusing on the middle of the plate more yeah. because I will chase, right? I, I saw a ball that uh, made from the Dodgers through the day 99 that just was oh, yeah, dirty was and chased Machado, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But if you're, if, if you're not controlled and you're not looking you know, for that pitch in that area, you're going to chase 99 on your hands. You're going to chase 99 away. You're going to do all those things to get yourself out. So it's very important for me personally to always have a game plan, but with guys that throw high velocity and aren't accurate, Mm -hmm. you have to think more middle of the plate because you'll, you'll chase more pitches. And, you know, especially like now the high pitch, you know, guys are chasing more high pitches than ever. Um, That's why pitchers are going up there because, you know, swing, swing and miss rate up there is high. I'm waiting for the correction. That's kind of like the, uh, the, the guess among a lot of our pro guys is like, when does this correct? When do we see the return of like the, the turbo sinker and all that baseball wide? Is it, is it coming? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. You know, everything's going to come back around. I think, you know, cyclical. like I said earlier, I, it's, it's all going to be based on injuries, right? Yeah. I mean, if we're going to see a, a huge spike in injury, I, I saw a crazy stat that said, um, God, there was like 18 starters that threw 96.5 or above on their average fastball. 11 of the 18 have had Tommy John surgeries. Jesus, it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> and that's that that stuck out to me. I was like, well, our teams, I mean, these guys are right. Are, you know, I get it, man. We all know this. Higher velocity is harder to hit. But at the end of the day, your value is being on the field. Your value is what you do and what you can help your team. If you're on the shelf, you don't help your team no matter how hard you throw. So I think it's going to be very interesting how, you know, teams are going to go into this. If they're having a couple starters, you know, every other year going on Tommy John's and missing a whole year, it's going to be hard to team build. The best ability is availability, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So, it's hard. It's it, very hard to, you know, do that. I mean, the relievers are different, right? I mean, these guys just keep coming up, uh, but that's also a weird thing about relievers. I mean, Somebody asked me a question the other day, can you name, you know, five relievers on every team? And it's really hard in a lot of ways because there's so much turnover in the bullpen. Yeah. I think there, you know, there is an underlying uh, assumption, I think, in certain organizations, unfortunately, that, you know, bullpen arms are expendable because, you know, you always have three guys in AAA that are throwing 96 to 100. And, 
you know, so you'll see a lot of guys that go up, down, they get used a lot. And um, that's, that's one of the tough dynamics in baseball. I think that's happened over the last probably five to six years as velo has spiked. It just seems like relievers, unfortunately, have become a little bit more homogenous, you know, in the way that they're viewed. For sure. So one of the things that I know was a huge deal back when you played in Boston, but I feel like it does get overlooked a lot more, particularly probably because teams are shifting so much more, is is the concept of defensive versatility. So you came up playing third base and then moved over to first base, um, which allowed the, the Red Sox to bring in Adrian Beltre. Um, you, you know, you set up the, the big consecutive airless game streak and, and you won a gold glove at first. I'm curious, was there a steep learning curve going from, from third to first? And, you know, what were the, the struggles with that? Or is it something that, that came really naturally for you? Third, yeah, third to first was a lot easier. Um, later on when I was playing more first base and I had to go first to third, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard. You got to work. I mean, third base is tough. So for me, what happened was I learned a lot, um, from my time of, trying to get, um, you know, into being really good as a third baseman and getting better and, and having really good coaches that worked with me. Uh, my whole goal was like, I need to be a better third baseman. And then what I did was when they moved me to first base, I was uh, a <laughs> joke around like the happy Gilmore. Uh, you know, I'm a hockey player playing golf. I had the same mentality kind of, uh, I'm a third baseman playing first base. Mm-hmm. And with that attitude, I never took a, a pitch off. And that was my key is like, man, just because you're over here and you can knock the ball down and flip it to a pitcher, like, don't take it for granted. Play this position the best you can because you are so vital in so many ways to one, you got to catch the ball. You can pick the ball. You can pick up your infielders. You can keep their confidence as high. And so I just worked really hard at first base on being the best I possibly could while also keeping that mentality of being a third baseman, you know, moving my feet, diving for balls and just really just you know, playing as hard as I could over there in order to, you know, give our, give our, you know, team the best chance to win. And I think, uh, you know, for anyone out there, I I think being versatile is the way to get to the major leagues. You know, the more positions you can play gives a team a better chance of putting you in the lineup. So I always tell young players, um, there was a a young player that the Red Sox drafted the first round here where I live. And, you know, he's a shortstop second man. And I was like, Hey, let's work on third base today, you know? And so we, we did a little third base work because I was like, listen, you play all three of these positions, you give your, you give yourself a best chance to be in the big league yep. and you give your team the best versatile, you know, lineup, you know, the lineup like cards that can switch, like a guy goes down, Hey, look, I can plug him in a third. I can plug him short second. He can also play center field. It's vital. It's a, it's a huge part of a, uh, for a manager, especially. Yeah, I think everybody saw kind of um, like the Ben, ben Zobris super utility player, you know, what it meant for and probably was it 2016, I'd say, with the Cubs when that came to the, the forefront the most or was it even earlier than that. But I feel like over the last four to five years, everybody has one of those super utility guys in their roster, whereas in the past, it just wasn't such a, a, a well-known thing. So, yeah, the Swiss Army knife. Yeah. You got to have a Swiss Army knife on your team. <laughs> and it, it, it's a big deal. Like, um you know, I really, really believe like, cause I, I had a, like, so I went down to AAA in 2005 and so I had to play second base a little bit. So I never played second base. So they wanted me to play like two games at second base a week, um, three games at uh, third base and two games at first base. So in AAA, like, and I was hitting well and doing really well, but man, I was working hard, man. I had to take pre, you know, you know, I had to work at third base this day and then second base, I work on double play feeds and, you know, first play, first base. So it was a lot of work, but in the end it paid off. And I think that's sometimes where guys, you know, everything relates to how much work you're going to put in. 
Now, it doesn't need to be eyewash and you need to go overboard and, and, and make sure every coach, you know, and, and, you know, sees you doing all this work and stuff like that. But it's about the timely reps. When you get in there, work your butt off, do them, a, do, you know, do them 90% or whatever, 80, you know, mm-hmm. 70 to 90%. Do them quick, get, get your work in, do it fast like a game in some ways where you don't get, where you're not going to get yourself hurt. But, you know, I, I see so many guys that they, they think, it's the amount of work versus the quality of work. No, that's a great point. Um, I, so we've had some retired players on in the past. Actually, Tom Kohler was on not too long ago. Middlebrooks has been on. Um, and I always enjoy their answers because I feel like they can be brutally honest. So like, you know, Tom talked about <laughs> give, giving up three tanks to Bryce Harper in a game. Middlebrooks, you know, basically commented on how he barely could ever hit a, a hard slider. Um, I'm curious, you know, you're retired. You can spill the beans now. Like, was there, were there pitches or, or pitchers that for you were impossible to hit and, and some that at the other end of the spectrum who you always, you know, felt like you thrived against? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I loved hitting lefties. Um, that was definitely a uh, bread and butter of mine. I really enjoyed, um, lefties, uh, righties. For me, it was the righties that could really spot, you know, the right that could spot the, the fat, they, they have a three pitch combo, you know, with a fastball slider changeup. Uh, the righties that threw the right on right changeups, uh, I, I don't know, you know, for me, those were very tough. Uh, you had your like James Shields, you had your, you know, Kyle, I mean, the Rays had all those guys, but yep. a good changeup, you know, guys that had a really good changeup, really good split finger, those were the guys that were very, very tough to hit at times. So, uh, I always tell guys, uh, you know, we, you know, we, we talk so much about throwing velo, but I want to talk more about like how to throw a great changeup because a great changeup will keep you in the game a long time. I mean, there's so many great pitchers that have developed a, either a split finger or a changeup that has kept them in the big leagues for a long, long time. I know we had a we had a, a big league guy this off season was talking about Carlos Carrasco's right on right changeup, and he's like, that pitch should be outlawed. <laughs> so you're, you're definitely not alone. Um, so. Yeah, and it's weird. A lot of guys don't like throwing it, and uh, I tell them, you know, it's you know, it was funny because Dustin Madroy and I, Dave Magnum would go, "Hey guys, this guy's gonna, he doesn't throw, this guy doesn't throw a changeup a lot, but PD and you, because we always hit right next to each other, he's like he he will throw you one." And Mags was right. That's why he was a great hitting coach because yeah. he he knew like he was gonna throw us a changeup, one or the other, um, or both of us would get that changeup, and it was just great knowledge, but I think that's a, it's a pitch that I know like some people, they just leave it up and miss and righties can hit, you know, homers to left or doubles down the line. But you know, when it's effective, it's, it's a hell of a pitch. Right on. So on that note, hitting's changed a lot in the last few years and you've hinted at a little bit and certainly pitching has evolved probably even more so with, with the pitch design and the analytics we have. How do you think your approach would be different now in 2020 as compared to eight, 10 years ago, both in the context of maybe the, the resources that you would have at your fingertips, but also, uh, you know, how the game has changed to, you know, you're seeing way more curveballs and then heaters up. Um, what, what do you think would be different about Kevin Euclid in, in 2020 if you were still playing? Uh, definitely a lot more walks and hit by pitches. <laughs> I, I don't even know how many hit by pitches I would have. I, I, you know, looking at, you know, I did a little study from like 2005 to 2010 and it was like 0.348 hit by pitches a game. Now it's like, you know, 2015 to 20. I mean, it's increased like 12%. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so getting hit by pitches, it definitely would wear more guards. Um, <laughs> so these guys are just, they're smoking guys. I mean, I, I'm in spring training watching with the Cubs <laughs> and I'm like, God. I've never seen so many hit by pitches in spring training. Oh my god! You know, usually that's like the time where you're trying to work on things, and I get it. You know, the balls get away, but guys were just 
coming in there trying to throw as hard as they can, and batters are just getting worn out, uh, which is kind of scary in a lot of ways. That, you know, as velocities increase, uh, and the fact that like hitters can't do anything. You just sit there and you wear it. You can't charge the mound. You can't do anything about that. <laughs> but like you know, like you're at such a loss, right? All you can do is maybe try to hit the ball off the pitcher, which is like nearly impossible half the time to do, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm going to hit one off the pitcher day. Well, he just threw me a fastball in. I can't hit him that hard because I'm going to get jammed here. And he's not going to be hurt by it. But, you know, I think uh, if I was playing today, I think, you know, the greatest, the greatest resources and tools are, are one, nutrition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the clubhouses have such great uh, nutritionists and, yeah. and, you know, the food is better, which would have helped me in a lot of ways. But uh, I believe a lot of this technology is, is more beneficial for strength and conditioning than yeah. anything else. Yeah. So that's my personal opinion. Yeah. I, I truly believe that if we're going to put on the, you know, the, the K-Vest and find out the deficiencies and weaknesses, I would rather not take that into the mechanics of a swing. I'd rather take it into the weight room and strength and conditioning and really figure out how to make those weaknesses average and maybe average the strengths and uh, then work from there. That's a great point. Um, Are there resources that excite you when you see it now? You know what I mean? Like stuff that you're like, man, that could, I mean, I remember talking to, I saw Schilling, you know, a while ago and, you know, it was one of the first times he'd interact with like a rap Soto just to see like, you know, for a guy that was that analytical, you know, through a very true four seam, basically through a pitch for a strike and a pitch for a ball. You know, if he had had those back in the day, what would it have, you know, allowed him to do in terms of pitch optimization? Are there any resources that you see that I uh, feel like you could have, that could have made you even better? Well, I think some of those 3D imaging, yeah. um, you know, the Kinetrax, but I know we have that in yeah. some ways. I think those are good because you can kind of tell like on a graph setting, like if you're dropping your hands too much or yeah. if you're dropping your back shoulder too much. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's good in, in, in a sense. But like I said, I think if you really, really learn your body, right, if you learn the kinesiology and how your body works when you're going good and when you're going bad, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, somebody can sit there and tell you what you're doing every single time wrong. That doesn't, that doesn't help you in the long run if you're not figuring out how your body feels, Mm -hmm. right? So when we talk about the feel versus real, for me is when you hit a ball really well, you need to, you know, run, you know, run the bases. Let's say you get on second base, but right, right when that, you know, the motor ends and you get, you get to take a breath, take your batting gloves off, you need to revisualize what just happened. Mm -hmm. And if you revisualize the pitch and how you hit it and, and all the feels that came within it, you can put your brain in the best spot the next time to understand when you do it wrong and say, oh, wait, no, this was it. You know, this bad path was the right path. You know, because the thing is this, some guys have different cues on different days too. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know, you try to keep your cues in line all the time. The best hitters have the cues all the time, but you get off your cues sometimes because you don't feel right. And so next thing you know, you turn your simple, you know, I'm going to move back with my you know, back shoulder or my back hip or my, or whatever your, whatever your cue is, you get away from it. And then you're like, wait, well, maybe I need to coil more or maybe I need to, you, you know, and then next thing you know, a spiral is out of control. So I always feel like if you, if you practice and learn your mechanics in a way where you're doing it, not even by just swinging at a hundred percent, but just slowly going through them, I think you give yourself the best best in-game adjustments when you don't do it right. I love that. And, you know, it's interesting because you've, 
you know, I think we can both agree. Like a lot of times there are guys who are elite players who don't make elite coaches, you know, for whatever reason, they, they can't teach what they did or they don't necessarily right. have like the empathy for other guys. You've obviously, you've done well in your, in your new role with the Cubs and, you know, has served as a mentor to a lot of young players. So I'm curious, like when you made that transition from playing, you know, to, to this like coaching slash mentorship role, what, what do you feel like the hardest adjustments for you? Like, did you catch yourself in the moment saying, Hey, this isn't working. I need to approach things this way. Like what, what was the biggest learning curve in that regard? I think the hardest part of going from playing to going on the coaching side is the fact that <laughs> people that you, you think players would ask you more questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not true. <laughs> There's not a lot of players will come up and ask questions and, and, what you have to do is you have to first just gain a relationship mm-hmm. with the players. And sometimes it's not even talking baseball. And I think that's where things get lost is everything is so literal in baseball in today's world. That's a great point. I, I truly believe that conversations, getting to know a player, knowing if they're married, knowing if they have a girlfriend, knowing where they're from, knowing the littlest things about them helps set up a better relationship in the end to be a hitting coach or a pitching coach. Because when you get to know that person off the field and understand maybe a little bit about their psyche or their, their background, you might find avenues of how to teach that player or how to empathize with that player and what they might be going through in life. So uh, that was one thing that I found was you have to develop relationships with the players and you have to, be, and you have to work at it. You, you, know, you have to go up to them. You have to talk to them. And... Uh, you know, that, I think that was the hardest thing. And, 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 the, and secondly, the, basically, the hardest thing I learned with being an evaluator and going to minor league spring training and watching 100 guys the first time was the realization that there was probably only about 10 guys in the whole entire camp that have a chance. Really? It's interesting. And when I was playing, I was like, oh, we're all in this. You know, we're all like, we're all fighting, you know, for the dream and we're going to make it. And, you know, and, and, and you realize some guys aren't going to make it. But you think everyone has a chance. And then on the evaluating and coaching side, you're like, wow, you know, holy cow, there's a lot of guys that don't have a chance, but it's cool. They get the opportunity to play in pro ball. They get to, you know, have these experiences. Maybe something clicks with these guys, but for the most part, there's a lot of guys in A ball that will never get out of A ball. It's interesting. When you look at hitters, what's the biggest reason that you think guys don't make it? What, what puts them in that category? The inability to square up the ball. No matter what we talk about for the history of this sport, Chipper Jones said it best. The guys that know where the barrel of the bat is and barrel it up more, that's everything. Those guys always are the best hitters. I don't care about anything like, I mean, and it's very simple in a lot, you know, in a lot of ways, but we're overcomplicating this stuff in, in so many different variables of, can the guy find the barrel? Can the guy find the barrel off balance, flick the ball over the shortstop second baseman's head? You know, little things like that. that that's finding the barrel. It's just not in the optimum swing path that you need to have, you know, this, you know, short to contact and, you know, all these, all these variables that we know to be true also. But like competing in the box is finding the barrel. And sometimes it's not finding the barrel. Sometimes you need to get jammed. Yeah. You know, Terry Francona used to tell me that all the time. He's like, you, you're struggling, man. But like, you're just not letting the ball get deep. You know, you're rolling over the balls because you're out in front, but just get jammed, you know, hit the ball in the right center field, a little floater. Mm-hmm. And he was right. A lot of times I get jammed. Next thing the ball falls in and 
I'm on my way and yeah. hit start falling. It's like an overcorrection to get you back to neutral. Um, so actually on that, on that line, you, you had a chance to play with some, some really special talents, um, you know, in Boston. And I'm, I'm curious, like what you picked up from each of them. So I'm going to give you three names first, Manny Ramirez from being around him every day. What, what did you pick up? Wow. I mean, Manny was this, I mean, all the things he did, I mean, when, I mean, his work ethic his his path and the way he went to the ball. Um, I, I, I try to emulate it, but figured out that that's not going to work um, in some regards in other regards it worked, but you know, Manny was, he, he worked, he had an amazing work ethic. He was always doing something. He, you know, he had w- this whiffle ball ring thing with a yellow, blue and uh, red ball and you'd spin it. Like you throw it like uh, clockwise stuff, at right? him in a batting stand. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but, yeah. and you say red and he tried and he'd catch it. So, not only was he using his, it was eye hand coordination, but also timing. Like he would catch it deep, he would catch it forward, and just all these little things he did. I, I remember like there was like a, a baseball you throw at him, and he would just take his hand in his batting stance, his top hand, and take his hand to the ball close to his body and go up through it right towards the pitcher. And all those little things I just took away, and I was like, okay, well, this is what he's trying to do. Now I'm going to try to do the same thing with my hand motion. And now how do I apply that to my body? How do I apply that to my mechanics? And when I started doing that, I realized like it was a way to be short to the ball. It was a way to have strong, you know, basically a strong hitting, you know, basically my arms, my body were all connected and close, you know, the closer to your body in that strong point, Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, when you're younger, you get your arms out and extended. Mm-hmm. to try to hit the ball. So that's probably the biggest thing I learned from him was how to be connected, you know, and, and get the balls inside and how to put your, like, I always call it like I take, you take the knob and you put it in your left pocket. If you're a right-handed hitter. Interesting. You don't do it, but it's the feel. I like it. I mean, it's again, it's one of those overcorrections, but it brings you back to a point where you feel normal, you know? Um, Correct. It's like the swing down yeah. talking point that people just never will stop fighting about. But <laughs> unless you do it and understand it and know it, it's, it's a thought process. I'm going to go, I'm thinking down to the top half of this ball in order to flatten out my swing where it doesn't get, where my back shoulder is not dropping and my elbow is not going into my hip. You know, my, my back elbow, I want going towards my belly button, not down to my back hip because if it goes my back hip, I'm rolling over. And Manny was so good getting that getting that elbow going towards the belly button what, what about uh david ortiz and i'm curious because you saw ortiz at, like you know as he you know he moved from minnesota to boston and really figured out you know 0304 what were the things that you picked up from him you know david just you know he was a, he, same thing he worked his butt off he he did the little things uh i you know david got on top of the world and then i was very fortunate to see david when he hit a skid mm-hmm. i don't know if you remember this but he had a really, really rough patch and he got booed and, um, it was, it was bad. It was just like this, like, it was just as a teammate, you're like, God, this is like a legend. He's so great. It's big poppy. What the hell? Like, come on, poppy, you got this. Mm -hmm. And it's probably one of the most frustrating things, not only when you're going through as a player, but when you're a teammate and you can't help a guy Mm -hmm. and he's coming up to you and asking you questions. But I just remember was, he got shifted so much and he was trying to kill the ball because he was so frustrated. He's like, I'm just going to try to hit homers. And then 
he went through the stretch, you know, he hurt his wrist and that didn't help. And, um, I actually was sitting behind him. A funny story was, uh, <laughs> one of our coaches told me that Tito put me behind David. So if the fans decided to start booing, it sounded like they were cheering me. And not <laughs> David. That's incredible. Um, I, I, I don't know if that story is a hundred percent true, but I think it's one of the smartest Terry Francona moves of all time. Um, but what I remember was when he got back on track, he worked on just hitting the ball towards the shortstop base hits. So when you go back and you look at a certain point where he was struggling and then got to the, where he, where he started having more success again, he said, okay, well, they're giving me this left side of the infield. I got great enough eye hand coordination where I'll just slap it to left. If they want to throw me a fastball out over the plate and not give me anything to try to drive or, you know, off speed out there, I'm just going to slap it that way. And he started doing that, started hitting balls off the wall. And then he would take his chances and hit the homers in the right field gap and stuff like that. So the key was he made adjustments. And what I loved to watch was, wow, he just made an adjustment there. Like this guy is, is legendary because he knew how to make the proper adjustments that weren't fitting in the ego part where I need to hit more home runs. I'm big poppy. It was more like, I need to get hit. I need to get on base and I need to score runs for our team. I mean, he, he became pretty proficient, you know, at, at peppering the wall at Fenway, you know, to the opposite field. It was like, it was something you came to expect later in years, but I don't think anybody ever realized that that wasn't something that he did a ton early on. Yes. So what about, 100%. Uh, I was going to say, what about Pedroia? I feel like there's probably some good stories in here, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's endless stories for Petey. Petey was just one of those guys that he was married. He's, he, you know, he's married to the game. He just, He'd, he'd be the first one there. It wasn't eyewash because Petey just loved baseball. You know, sometimes I'm like, dude, Petey, get the hell out of here. Like, what the hell are you doing, man? But then you come to love it. You come to realize how much he's dedicated to the game, to his team, to his teammates. And his whole goal was every day just, you know, I need either, you know, keep getting better or I need to maintain what I have. And he was so good at that. He just, he was, you know, he just, he just, be on that. <laughs> it was crazy. I mean, he'd sit there. I don't even know what time. It, I felt like it was like six fifteen. He'd be out in the dugout, like just with his bat, batting gloves on, and just like I don't know if he was, you know. I, and I definitely need to have him on my podcast at some point to talk about, you know, was it visualization? You know, was he visualizing, you know, the game and what it was going through? Was it nervous energy where being in the locker room was worse than him seeing the field? I think it was really cool, but Petey just went about everything, like just turning double plays to, to running the bases, you know, to bunting. I mean, the guy did anything and everything he could in order to put the team um, in the best chance to win. And I think that's what we fed off each other so much on the right side of the infield. We just love that. I mean, our mentality was that we, we hate losing. So we're going to do anything we can to beat you. And that was our mindset every day. Um, so I'm curious, this is a total change of pace, but a lot of people are calling baseball ugly now. And I, we've, we've texted about it, you know, high strikeout mm -hmm. rates, lots of home runs, the game, you know, people concerned about being slow, crazy reliance on the shift. You know, there's you know concerns about declining attendance, obviously no attendance in 2020, but where do you see <laughs> things going in the years ahead? Like, first off, do you think baseball is ugly? And, you know, depending on that answer, take it the direction you want. Where do you see it heading, um, in the years ahead? Well, baseball is my favorite sport of all time. Yeah. I'll always love it. I'll always be a fan. Major League Baseball doesn't have to worry about me ordering the package because yeah. I'm a lifer. Yeah. So first and foremost, <laughs> I'm a lifer. I love baseball. Uh, uh, and secondly, uh, the shift. I, I don't understand people's argument of why do teams shift. 
Um, you're playing the high. I've always believed in the shift ever since I've seen it work. Um, I don't think the shift in college really works because you don't have a sample size, yeah. which I love. I love and hate sample size because every excuse that's in modern day baseball is, oh, well, we just don't have a large enough sample size. Yeah. Oh, but we're going to we're going to put this into action and play, even though we don't have enough large, you know, mm-hmm. sample size is small. OK, I get it. Um, it's really a weird thing in baseball right now. You know, in the science world, we're like, well, we can't put any information out here because there's not enough, you know, not enough sample size. We'll get more sample size. Then we'll have a definitive thing for you. <laughs> now we're just like, let's go with it until we get the sample size. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm in favor of the shift. I think college, they overshift. I saw my uh, Bearcats beat Oregon State on overshifting. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, the, the, there's just not enough sample size. And, and those guys, just, they just don't, they're just not as refined as major league players, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not hitting spots as much. They're, you know, they're not, their contact rates are different. But I, I think baseball is in a real struggle right now um, for fans. Uh, for me, watching a game, uh, like I said, I love it. I love baseball. I love just watching every little part of it. But I can see where fans don't want to watch baseball anymore because the innings, like when you see a 30-pitch inning from a reliever multiple times, and you're seeing a lot of walks, you're seeing a lot of strikeouts, people like action. Yep. There's a reason why people like football. There's a reason why people like you know, sports that are, you know, like UFC is big. You know, what, you know there's a lot of contact. But, yep. you know, the key is, the reason I think baseball is not where it needs to be. And it kind of started when I played was like stolen bases went down. Right. Mm-hmm. And growing up in the eighties, there was nothing better than the stolen base. Yeah. I mean, St. Louis Cardinals, Ricky Henderson. I mean, all of these guys would steal bases. It was electric. Baseball was more exciting. And I think that's one of the biggest problems we have now is there's just not enough action like web gems, right? We want web gems. We want, you know, we want guys throwing guys out. I mean, you know, uh, Taylor from the Dodgers throwing them out yeah. at the plate at the end of the game. Like, yeah. you, you never see that. Mm-hmm. That was like, I mean, I don't know about you. When I saw that, I was like, holy yeah. cow. Yeah. The guy got thrown out the plate. To that's amazing. Game, to end the game, too. You know, to, to end the game. I'm yeah. like, that stuff used to happen. And I don't even yeah. know. It probably didn't happen as much as we thought, right? Mm-hmm. The numbers don't really add up to it. But for me personally, I just think that the fan base wants action. Yeah. And people are making tons. Of, I've heard commentators are the fault. And listen, kids aren't even listening to the game, right? I mean, they're probably just watching the game. They're not listening to commentators. And I, I know, I, I get what people are saying, like, well, back when we play, but it is true in some ways. The game was faster. There was more action. There was more balls in play, which leads to people liking the game more. I mean, people just don't want to sit there and not see anything happen. I mean, I know a strikeout is something happening, but people like contact. They like to see the ball moving. They like to see the ball thrown. And it, it keeps people's eye, you know, especially now more than ever with, uh, you know, the attention spans going down, yeah. people need to have their eyes moving in different directions in order to keep up with the game. Mm-hmm. What do you think the solution is? I mean, obviously, because, you know, teams are doing this, you know, in large part because it's, it's, a, it's a way to win games, right? It's a more specialized, you know, pitching experience, you know, you get paid for homers, like all these different things. Like, is there a solution? Like, uh you know, certainly we, we can talk about, you know, where the youth game is headed, but do you think that at the major league level, this is an entertainment issue or it's a, it's a way the game is played issue? Well, you know, the funny thing is everyone goes, Oh, you get paid for homers. Yeah. When didn't you get paid for homers? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like my, so there's so many talking points now that I hear that people are like, Oh, the game is changing forever. I'm like, because velocity goes up because guys are hitting, trying to hit more homers. Like, Guys, guys always got paid for homers. 
I remember going through arbitration. That was the only thing they had on me was, hey, he doesn't hit enough homers. <laughs> and that was their argument. And even Jed Hoyer like laughs now. He's like, you know, that was the hardest, you know, because all we kept talking about was on base percentage, on base percentage. And then I'm telling you, oh, your on base percentage doesn't matter. You need to hit more homers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's always been that way. We are trying to make this game like it, people are infiltrating this game and trying to change it in order for themselves to look like they have the magical solutions that they're changing the game forever. But the simple rules like that apply still like about the game that are beautiful and, and how you get guys out and how you get hit and how you win games. It's no different, right? It's just, we're not stealing bases as much yeah. and we're throwing the ball harder. Uh, so I, I personally think that we've, we've kind of overreacted and, and, uh, and I always say this too on a, the complexity bias within baseball is at an all time high. You know, if you, if you, if you sound smart, if you can break it down in scientific terms, therefore you know way more about the game. And I think the beauty of the game is simplified in a lot of ways. And it's even, it's even more magnified by the, I guess the, the barrier to entry is lower than ever, right? Everybody can get a Twitter account. Everybody can get an Instagram profile and, and jump right in on that chaos. You know, all the, all the data is commercially very easily accessible on, you know, fan graphs and baseball savant and some of those other websites. So it's, it, it magnifies Correct. it for sure. Um, what about the youth aspect of things, right? I, I know you obviously you, you alluded to it and, and fill us in some more, but and you're getting involved in the youth scene a little bit. Like what are your concerns at that level? Uh, the biggest concerns help uh, both physically and mentally. Um, I, I think physically, you know, it's, it's, it's a no brainer that we're seeing, you know, with specialization in baseball, way more injuries, not just Tommy John, but injuries. Yeah. More kids are injured than ever before specializing in youth sports. It's like documented in, I don't know how many case studies. I mean, you're, you're good at reading those, so you can yeah. give me all the uh, cliff notes <laughs> for them, but I just don't get that part. Like I, I don't get that the science, you know, it's funny. Like I, I say this in life is we only want to use science when it applies to our, our talking point. And, uh, I just think overall, I just think, uh, you know, youth sports in general, the parents are out of control, which they're, you know, and the kids are just following direction in a lot of ways. Right. But, you know, I think there's a huge money grab. I mean, if you look at the time magazine, it was like $5 billion in youth sports and, I just think there's a lot of people chasing the money grab versus actually doing what is best for the kids overall. Uh, parents want their kids to get a division one scholarship. They don't know that 11.7 scholarships is all, you know, the division one teams have, and yeah. that has to be your kid's not getting a full ride most likely. And if he gets a full ride, he's probably getting drafted and good. You know, that's a great thing too. But I, I just think there's a lot of information out there that doesn't necessarily add up to the reality of youth sports. So for me, I just think we, we, we need to take a step back. We need to just think about why and, and what we want out of our kids. Mm -hmm. You know, don't, I mean, at the end of the day, don't we want our kids just to be happy and healthy? Yeah. Yep. And I mean, that's what I want. I mean, I, as a yeah. parent, I think that's all we should want. Yeah. But, fall, you know, putting too game, much stress. Fall in love with the game, develop a, you know, lifelong habits for exercise, physical activity that will sustain them well beyond their baseball career. I, I always tell parents when they come in, like 99.9% .9 of the kids here aren't going to play in the big leagues, but if they can fall in love with this environment, realize that exercise is an important part of their life. They, you know, develop another social circle that keeps them out of trouble at a time when they're very, um, you know, very impressionable in their teenage years, then, then we've done our job, whether, whether you hit 500 foot home runs or not. 
Yeah. I mean, what's your fight? Like, you know, when, when people come in, like what's one of the biggest things you see that with, from parents that what they're expecting of you to do for them? Yeah. I think there's, there's definitely that side of things um, that, you know, the parents are always the challenge. I mean, I've heard that over and over again. What's the problem with new sports? It's the parents, you know, kids, kids and have not changed. And I've heard a lot of people say over the years that kids are different these days. Kids are exactly the same. It's the, the, the circumstances surrounding kids that have changed. Um, it's the way that they're either parented or not parented. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's the lines that, you know, haven't been drawn in the past. And I think one of the things that is the most frustrating for me is when a, a parent won't even get a, give a kid opportunity to be an advocate for him or herself. So as an example, like, you know, first day we always do an evaluation, right? So you fill out the health history. We, we sit down, we talk about your training experience, your training goals, your injury history, all these different things. And, you know, probably 30% of evaluations, the parent just interjects and speaks over the kid. You know, the kid can describe, you know, the wrist pain he had or, you know, how he did after his ACL surgery or whatever it was, but they, they don't even let him talk. Um, so what I look for is like, Hey, can kids schedule their own sessions, right? Can they write their own college recruiting emails? Can they, they do these important things that are going to sustain them way beyond baseball? Um, you know, it's just, it, that's the thing is that so often the parents want to just uh, take the never mind, I'll just do it. When in reality, if you, you know, you teach the kid to fish, you're not going to have to give him fish every day for the rest of his life. Right. So. And I think that's the big part with like, for me and hitting. Mm-hmm is if every time they're looking at a screen to get, you know, what I, uh, well, this drives me nuts. There's two things that drive me much about social media, uh, baseball. Uh, one being, uh, when I watch a kid in a cage and every time he takes a swing, he looks back at a screen that's behind the cage yep. <laughs> every single time. Mm-hmm. It, it, it just like, he'll look back, he'll look back, he'll look back. And I'm like, man, one, his neck's going to kill him. Yep. You know, <laughs> cause he keeps looking back. But two, it's like, you don't need that. You can't use that in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, you are, you know, I get like, I would rather you at the end of the session, go review it. Mm-hmm. But they're constantly looking at these screens for, you know, feedback and data and data. And when they can really, really discover it with a good coach mm-hmm. saying, Hey, look, no, 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 come on. Try to hit this point in the yep. cage. We're going to do target practice. Try to hit this, try to hit this, try to hit this. And when you do that target practice type environment, you start learning your body more. Start learning. Oh, I rolled over that. Okay, now what do I need to do to not roll over that? Okay, look, boom, boom, boom. That's what a to me a cage session is about, and I think it works. And the other thing, you know, that that drives me nuts about social media today are young ball players that have no respect for the the players that came before them. I've seen more young players talk smack to former major league players, and I like look back and I was like. If I was 18, if I was 15 yeah. to 22, <laughs> I would be picking the brains of every Cincinnati Red Bull on social media and trying to get to understand them. And it just, it just, this doesn't happen. They just tell you, they, they tell you that you're wrong and they tell you that you have no idea what you're talking about because the game's passed you by. I saw one the other day where, uh, somebody give you a hard time. They, what was it? Something along the lines of guys didn't throw hard when you played. And I, I read yeah. it and you, you chirp back at him, but I, I like distinctly remember I was sitting with your cousin. Brady and I sat together behind home plate. It was, I don't even know if you remember this. It was Darnell McDonald's first game in the big leagues. And yeah. you, you worked the leadoff walk against Naftali Feliz. And then Darnell hit like a walk off double to win the game. And like, actually in that moment, I'm like, guys didn't throw hard back then. And I went, I went to fan graphs and I looked up Naftali Feliz's average fastball that year. He was 96.3 on the year and he peaked at like, I think he threw 101. I'm like, 
The, yeah. Baseball didn't like just evolve in 2019. Like guys were starting to throw harder a long time ago. It was a, it was like a comical exchange of you're just an old man. You well, don't know anything. The, well, the worst part about it, they don't go do their homework. Yeah. They don't research. Right. Mm-hmm. But guess why? They don't go do the research is because the people that they look up to right now only live in the present because they're selling something. Yeah. The, 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 the problem right now is what's going on in baseball is if you, if you self promote yourself, and like I said before, and you sound complex mm-hmm. and like complexity bias, yeah. people believe everything you say and they take it as gospel. And the key I try to explain to everyone is there's so many different ways to go about it. These Dominican kids, these Cuban kids, these Latin kids, they don't have all this technology and information growing up, but they somehow find a way to get to the major league. You know, and, and like I said, if the technology works for you and it makes you a better player, so be it. I'm all for it. But it's not the end all be all of what is or what is the reason why a player becomes a great player. Mm-hmm. You know, this kid that just got drafted by the Red Sox that I just worked out with here. And I, I, I literally asked him, I was like, hey, uh, do you use any rap soda or anything like, you know, um, you know, hit tracks or, all, you know, cave ass or anything. And because I was like, I want to, you know, go over the numbers with him to see what he knows. Right. And understand. He says, I, I don't use any of it. I never used any of it. He got a blast put on his bat at a perfect game. Mm-hmm. And he swung through a pitch and he took the blast off and he threw it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a great story. And I was like, oh, okay. But there also could be a kid in the first round that used all this stuff. And yeah. he's doing very, very well. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, like, I try to just tell everyone, like, don't put everyone in a basket. You know, because yeah. some kids might not feel comfortable using it. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. All right. So we always do a lightning round at the end of every podcast. This is where I ask like a, oh. a quick hitter question and then you can give me your, uh, your answers. So first one, what hitters do you like to watch in today's game and why? Oh, wow. Um, I love guys like, uh, I mean, Rizzo. I love watching him compete with two strikes. I like Nolan Arenado, just an all-around stud hitter. Uh, Jeff McNeil, one of my favorite yeah. players to watch, just an all-around scrappy player. Yeah. Nico Horner. Um, yeah, you know what? I, I'm a guy that, you know, I love guys that, you know, use the whole field, play the game, you know, just, you know, guy on second, third, hit a ground ball up the middle, basically just play the game. I mean, the, the cliche, you know, you hear that play the game, the guys that do all the little intangibles very, very well are the guys I love to watch. I like it. All right. Uh, favorite teammate of all time and why, if you want to pick more than one, Sean Casey. All right. Why? Easy. (laughs) <laughs> John Casey, he's one of the best human beings I've ever been around. Funny dude. Yeah. Always there to go to war with you. Um, you know, he, <laughs> when Coco charged the mound, he beat me out to the mound. I still don't understand that because he's <laughs> way slower than I'll ever be. But uh, just a fun-loving guy, good Midwest guy, and uh, we've always clicked and, and good friends until this day. I like it. All right, give Kevin uh, Euclid as a teenager some advice. If you go back in time and talk to a 16-year-old Kevin Euclid, what do you say? Uh, first, really, really get into the books. Mm-hmm. You know, educate yourself. You know, get a 4.0. Mm-hmm. You know, strive for it. Strive for greatness in the classroom. I wish I would have done a lot better. Um, I didn't do bad, but I wish I would. I mean, I wish I would have got a 4.0 every single year. I know if. I put all my time and energy like I do it in a baseball. I could have got a 4.0. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just, I'm basically throwing that out there, but maybe a 3.7. But <laughs> Attaboy. You know, and, and, you, and to yeah. your credit, you went back and finished your degree when you were done with the, you. You had 10 years in the show, and you went back and got your, uh, your degree at Cincinnati. So that's, that's your I did. I went, I went back to college, got straight A's. 
Nice. So pretty happy about that. And uh, yeah, first and foremost, hit the books. Second, um, play multiple sports until yep. your senior year or like your junior year. If you like, you go sign somewhere and you know you're going to play, you know, but if you're not going to play uh, college sports, play as many sports as possible. And third, just, uh, you know, get into nutrition early um, and light strength and conditioning in high school. Uh, don't go too overboard because, uh, you know, there's plenty of room to uh, you know, stay raw. I, I like I like guys staying raw for a good period of time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as they get into those junior and senior years, start, you know, getting into their bodies a little more. They start developing. So, you know, stay raw and have fun. Nice. All right. So last one. What's next for you? I know you've got you got the brewery. You've got you got a coffee presence. You're you're talking travel baseball. What else is in the mix? Well, I, I think that's it so far. Uh, yeah, we got a coffee company that's going through uh, mechanical inspections next week, hopefully on Monday. So we'll be officially open in Portland, Oregon. Nice. Um, working on a production brewery for Loma Brewing Company here soon. We find out in September if we get the uh, space available. Uh, but that's about it. Just waiting for this COVID thing to end and I'm ready, man, to live a little normal life again. So, uh, yeah, we're just gonna, we're, uh, like I said, uh, we're, it's gonna be called grind to shine baseball. Oh, so a like little sneak preview. That's so great. the name of our, our thing's gonna be grind to shine baseball. And we're going to work with, uh, you know, kids, uh, in, in low, low income households and try to help them out and then try to help finance their way through baseball. That's awesome. So folks can find you. It's Greek God of Hops on Twitter. It's Kevin Euclid underscore G-G-O-H on Instagram. And then you have um, a good presence for the brewery and the coffee company. You got your own podcast as well that, that people need to, to go check out. Um, this is awesome, man. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, anytime. Glad, uh, glad to see you're uh, moving up in the world. Trying, man. I'm trying to keep up with you. It's our days. But I owe, I owe you a lot of thanks. You uh, you taught me a lot early in my career, and uh, I learned a lot from from spending time with you during those uh, those cold winters in Boston. So I appreciate all the uh, <laughs> all the, all the advice you you paid it forward with. Well, I appreciate everything you did for me and uh, making Braden throw up one time on our way home from uh, <laughs> a workout. So uh, holy cow! There's yeah. A back. <laughs> Do you still have t-shirts that say I piss excellence? We have those. So that was, we should probably explain to the, to the audience what that was. Is that was, that was a Talladega Nights line. And I can't remember. I think you came in day one day and you said, I wake up in the morning and I piss excellence and we threw it on a t-shirt and we still make them. So there, uh, there, there are a few out there in existence. You got to look around. We have, I don't think we've done a reprinting since we were, you retired. It just didn't seem right to, to bring that shirt uh, back when you weren't on a baseball field, but maybe we'll, we'll do a resurgence. Timmy Collins probably has one laying around. He absolutely does. And the, and the sleeves are 100% cut off. A <laughs> <laughs> hundred. Nice, man. Well, thank you very much again. We wish you well with all your, uh, your crazy adventures. You get a lot of stuff in, in the fire. So we're, we're excited to see you do your thing. All right, buddy. Well, good luck to you. And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we get a normal baseball season next year. For sure. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.